beginning of the show, Mark said, my swing is shit and mm-hmm. my stupid little cut. So yeah. how can your swing be shit if you're a plus 1.4? Welcome back. Welcome aboard another Park Train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. I've got my partner in crime, Matt Cermak, with me. And this is one of those Stop interviews. Bad. One of those interviews. We finish the interview. <laughs> we pause, and Serm looks at me. He goes, wow. And this was a wow episode. But before we get to that, wow. if your golf game's off the rails, you're sick of riding the struggle bus, you've come to the right place. The Park Train helps frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again on and off the course because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. The Park Train podcast. Correct. Unpacked the mental game with PGA Tour pros, best-selling authors, CEOs, sports psychologists, everyday golfers like you and me, MLB players, amateur winners like Mark Mulder today and more to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and help you finally get back on track. This episode of The Part Train, like every episode of The Part Train, is presented by Roback Activewear. Sir, how often are you wearing those shorts I got you? I got them on right now. I got I'm the, wearing the mint I ones got, right now. I got the exact, the black ones. That you got me for the groomsman gift because you know I had the navy. I know, and I knew we'll you call had the, navy. the teal turquoise, yeah, which is a great mint. summer color. They're unbelievable. I wore uh, my mint shorts to work out this morning. Well, how hot is it in LA right now? Well, anybody out west, you gotta be wearing Roback you gotta, shorts, right? Honestly, <laughs> if it's hot where you're at and you don't have Roback shorts, I don't know what you're doing. So go to Roback.com. Wake up. Enter the code train. Get fifteen percent off. If you've done it before, enter a new email. Do whatever you have to do. These shorts are incredible. They also just released print hoodies. I can't possibly get another hoodie right now. It's too hot. Oh, but God. Maybe eventually I'll get one. <laughs> print hoodies. You know, that's kind of my jam. All right. I'm going to tell you the truth, sir. This episode, I was very excited about. I've been wanting to get a major league picture on the show for a long time because we talked about on the episode. It's probably pictures, kickers and football, free throws and basketball and golfers kind of share a similar mental challenge of it's in your hands. The play doesn't start until you throw it, you hit it, you kick it, whatever. And Mark is a former Cardinal and you know, I'm a Cardinals guy and let's just go through his resume really quick. And then we'll preview what we found. I mean, there were some amazing takeaways in this. Okay. He was a second overall pick in 1998 by the Oakland A's played for the A's and Cardinals heard of him. Led the American League in wins in 2001 with 21. Led the American League in complete games in 2003 and 2004. Shutouts led the league, American League, in shutouts 2001-2003. All-Star 2003-2004. And then let's go to golf, okay? 2010, he, he joined the Golf Channel Amateur Tour and won six times, okay? Oh, yeah. Then we what you guys probably already know is the American Century Celebrity Golf Championship in Tahoe. At Edgewood, which is probably a top 10 course I've ever played. It's an incredible track. He won the 2015, 2016, and 2017, three years in a row. So we get into that at the very end. Make sure you listen towards the end. I wish we could have gotten more into his Safeway Open appearance on the PGA Tour. He talked a little bit about that. But man, the nuggets and the learnings that he gave us, he's a plus 1.4 handicap and he hates his swing. Let's just start there. Yeah. What, what was your takeaway? Well, real quick too, he's from the south side of Chicago. And played at Michigan State. So he's, you know, then throwing the Cardinals, Midwestern roots. Yeah. yeah. And he's been in Scottsdale for a while. Yeah, he's a plus one, but at Whisper Rock and Silverleaf, which are two of the toughest courses in Arizona, the best courses. So he's a great player. But yeah, I, I loved, he's very motivational to me. You know, he was an, an incredible pitcher for, for those 10 or so years, got hurt, probably definitely could have pitched longer. But like the way he went from, being a top pitcher and, you know, really a top amateur player in some of these circuits he's playing yeah. is incredible. And a couple of things that stood out, right. He's, he's instinct. He's feel, he's not a big practicer, plays a ton, knows he doesn't have the best looking swing. Uh, but he talked about his fairway finder. He talked about, you know, hitting a cut up, cut with his driver, drawing it with his irons. And just, what did he say towards the end? You guys got to stay to the end. I'm out there to dominate. I'm yeah. out there to compete. And I thought some really cool learnings about some of his routines as a pitcher in baseball with his preparation, game day stuff, how he's translated that over into his amateur golf career. He would be a ton of fun to play with. I think everybody can take a lot from this interview because he doesn't obsess over the little stuff in the game. You know, he talked a lot about attitude too. So absolutely fantastic. 
just kind of feel pumped up right now. I mean, I know great. I'm ready great. to run through a wall right now, but I think the interesting thing, and this, I told you off air, this is probably the best interview for me to have before my member guest, because I think Mark really likes, he's a big commitment guy, but he's a big comfort and feel guy. So he needs to feel good and comfortable on the shot he's going to hit, or he's not going to hit it. Doesn't matter what the hole calls for. He needs to feel good about it. And I think a lot of us get into trouble, myself included, where we're so badly trying to get to a certain position or just improve, but in the swing. And right. I have felt like my swing. And you forget is, you forget to play the game. Right? Yeah. Like I haven't been playing the game really. I've been trying to, I've been, trust me, I've put in the work. Yeah. And Mark talked about that. He knows that if he put in too much work to change his swing, it wouldn't be fun. So he's going to play with what he's got. And shit, man, I think this is a wake up call. If someone's a plus one and they don't like their swing, I think it's about time we accept our own and realize that even if you don't like your swing or don't like the look of it, find something you can play with and own it. Yeah. There's so yeah. much in this episode. Definitely listen to the end because that's when we talk about the three wins at Tahoe. Absolutely. But yeah. We'll have to get Mark back. I mean, this was an incredible episode. So super happy with it. We're rolling, Ev. Yeah. We got a lot of good guests coming up. I got the member guest next week. I'm pumped about that. Let's go Flying back tomorrow. So guys, no matter how bad you think your swing is, no matter where that ball goes, Mark said it himself. What do they got to do, sir? Just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride, guys. Take care. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Give us a follow at the Park Train, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And uh, enjoy the ride. Take care. Mark Mulder, welcome aboard the Park Train, my man. We're happy to have you. How you doing? Good. So, Mark, before we jump in here, I just want to make sure my co-host, Matt, is okay. Because this is our second Cardinal we've had on the show. We haven't had a Cub yet. He's from Chicago. I'm a St. Louis guy. So, yeah. I just want to make sure he's in the right headspace before we start. I think he might be a little bit bitter, but I want to I want to see. I'm okay. I'm fine. You're okay. Okay. <laughs> I just want to be sure. All right. Good. Well, Mark. Go Cubs. <laughs> it was fun. Mark, it's funny. I was thinking about how to start this. And I was I just realized I was actually at the last game at old Bush stadium. I think it was game six of the 2005 NLCS. I even wore eye black. That's how big yeah. of a, a Cardinals guy I was. And I just wanted to ask, I thought it was fun to start there. What do you remember about that game? And was there a feeling or a pressure in the locker room to not let that be the last game at that stadium? What was going through your mind that game? Cause I think you were up against Royals Walt that game. Yeah, gosh, man. I mean, I remember starting the game off well, but, you know, that that second half of that season, well, I guess on and off throughout that whole season, I was dealing with shoulder stuff that whole time. And, you know, my arm felt good the first couple innings and then things kind of got away from me a little bit. But, you know, it was just it was one of those that that's probably one of the more disappointing moments of my career, I guess. I mean, there's you, you remember some good ones, but to be honest, man, the tough ones stick out more than anything. I've forgotten a lot of things that happened throughout my career, but some of those more significant losses, I guess you could say, are the ones that that stick with you a little bit longer, that you have a few more memories. I don't even remember who it was. I know someone hit a homer right down the left field line off me. It was one of those guys. I don't. I can't even remember his name, but the point being is it was someone that shouldn't be hitting a homer off me in one of those situations because I'm pretty sure I did well against them. You know, my sinker, if I just get it down, you get a ground ball to short, ground ball to third, but when you leave it up and it kind of comes right back over the middle of the plate, those are the types of things that happen. But, you know, coming off the game in Houston where Albert hits that bomb off Lidge, <laughs> just to get it to the sixth game yeah, uh, was pretty incredible because when you know you're starting the next game and you're in a situation like that, you never let yourself – leave that moment of, Hey, I might be pitching tomorrow or I have the next game, but you know, don't think for a second, you know, you're losing and and they have their, their closer in. And I know Albert did some incredible things throughout his career, but that's not exactly one you're expecting to happen. When yeah. he hit that Homer, I just remember, I remember my thought being nice. I get a chance to redeem myself, mm. you know, and, and those are the types of things that go through your head. And obviously I didn't do it, but, those are some of the special moments, but they're also some of the more memorable disappointments as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, moving into maybe some fun moments too, is I've always wondered being a big league picture, 
you know, you joke with friends. It's got to be such a great gig because you're out there one day out of the week, one out of five starts, right? Yeah. And I've always wondered as a golfer, are you golfing in between? Was what help us understand the schedule of a picture with your training and practice? And do pictures golf on days off? Yeah, I mean, definitely guys play more than others, with Smoltz being the prime example of someone who yeah. played more than anybody, but it was all around scheduling. So basically how it worked for me is that early in the season, April and May, you play a lot in the off season, you play some in spring training, but then once the season starts, you know, April and May, if we're going to, when I was in Oakland, let's say, if we were going to Cleveland and New York and Chicago, I mean, you're not playing a whole lot of golf in April and May. And I was always a guy, I never played the day I pitched and I never played the day before I pitched. So I had three days there. And if two of those could have been day games, generally, if we went on a road trip and I only had maybe one day to play of that six or seven day road trip because of day games or whatever, sometimes you have family in town, whatever it might be. But if I only had one day to possibly play, I usually wouldn't even bring my clubs. But that was also the tough thing. So you might go to us an amazing city. And if the days didn't work out, you couldn't play. And I didn't want to bring my stuff just to possibly play that one time. So I would get up, we'd tee off at eight o'clock. A lot of the nice places around the country would let us go play early. Back at the hotel by noon, you'd go have some lunch, you shower and head to the field by two o'clock. That was kind of the, the routine, I guess you could say. But I wasn't the the crazy golfer. Now over my career, I got to play a lot of golf at a lot of amazing courses around the country in all the best cities. So that was obviously really cool. Off days throughout the season, we would, I would make sure I was playing golf on some of those days, as long as I wasn't pitching the next day. I just never wanted to give anyone a reason to make an excuse or for there to be a story in the paper Oh, yeah, Mulder didn't pitch well on Wednesday, but hey, look, Tuesday he was golfing. Everybody wanted to come up with something when things weren't going well. But yeah, there were definitely guys who played more than others. When I was in Oakland, Corey Lytle and I played. He was kind of my golfing buddy on the road, along with our bullpen catcher. It just depends. St. Louis was the same way. Our bullpen catcher was a good golfer. and Sometimes some of the relievers would go play, but it was the same thing for them. They didn't want to feel fatigued for that game that night, even if maybe they only had to come in and face one hitter. You you just didn't want to give yourself a reason to to not be ready to, to succeed. Yeah, Mark, it's funny. That growing up, there was a group of pitchers that were always kind of in the golf spotlight. I think about Maddox. You said Smoltz, yeah. Roger Clemens, like definitely you see him on celebrity tournaments and they're mm-hmm. good players. So it's kind of just funny to think about that, like the correlation between pitching. and Yeah, people, people kind of think pitchers just – Oh, we, we have, we have four days off in between our starts. What people don't realize is those four days, the day I pitched was my off day. That was the easiest day because the other days, the amount of the work we have to put in the, the shoulder work, the, the workouts, the running, the conditioning, the, the side sessions, the things you put your body through those other four days, people have no idea. Those days were way harder than the day you pitched. No, that's good perspective. I was listening to a past interview with you and I like this quote you said. Uh, you said, nothing can happen in, in pitching until you throw the, the pitch. And it's the same with hitting a golf shot. Talk about that a little bit. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's very few things in sport that your thoughts, your whatever can get the best of you. You know, nothing can happen until you throw that pitch. So that's where you can outthink yourself. A quarterback It's a reaction seeing a receiver open. You react to the situation, pitching, shooting a free throw, kicking a field goal. Those are some of the things in sports and hitting a golf ball. Those are kind of the things. It's it's when you see guys talk about getting the yips. It's when you see guys talk about having having the, the issues mentally. To me, golf is just such a natural thing to where it's very similar to pitching. And I think that's also why I love it so much because it is such a mental grind. I'm glad I never tried to play golf for a living because <laughs> I, I do think it would have driven me crazy. I mean, don't get me wrong. Pitching is, is very similar, but to me, at least in baseball, we had guaranteed contracts. You know, you think about some of these guys who, who have a four footer on 18 for a, a tie for third or a solo second. It's a significant amount of money. 
life changing. And yeah. for the for the some for the certain guys who that is your your up and coming, that is life changing, you know, and or it's one hole, you know, uh, the 18th hole, you hit a bad tee shot. And now you go from you're in second place to a tie for seven. I mean, that's obviously not what you want your focus to be. But for some guys that gets the best of them. And I think it's an incredibly difficult thing. You think of the old time guys, wife and kids at home, and and they weren't playing for as much as these guys are playing for now. I mean, that, that was, that was tough on a lot of guys. So, um, but that's also why I love golf. I, I love the right. grind. I, my swing is shit. And the reality is, is I'm going to find a way to get the ball in the hole in less strokes than you. And, and that's just the way I love for the grind of, the, of golf. Yeah. Well, I guess when we do think about, right, you, t- you mentioned kicker, free throw, yeah. pitcher, golfer, you think about pre-shot routine, right? Mm-hmm. And it's something we all have a moment when we're viewing the golfer or the free throw, your free throw routine or your pitching routine. And we talk about pre-shot routine a lot on this show. And for me, I grew up playing, I played division one college and, you know, in the toughest moments, you've got to rely on that pre-shot routine sure. and you got to put in all that time and work to have an effective pre-shot routine. Is that something you thought about when you pitched and how did that correlate into your competitive golf career? Because to me, it's at the end of the day, that's what we have to lean on when the stakes are high, so to speak. I think for, for pitching, it's not as much a pre-shot routine because you're just standing there on the mound. You know, there, there's nothing that really goes into each pitch golf. Yes. That to me, that's huge because it's something you've done over and over and over again. So Pitching, you rely on all the sides. You rely on your side work. You rely on your preparation. And I, I kind of tell my boys, golf, baseball, soccer, what all they do is the moment's only too big for you when you haven't prepared for it. If you've hit all those shots, if you've put in the work that you should have done leading up to something, then that moment can never become too big. I always tell people the most anxious I ever was I I never really got nervous for baseball games I never got nervous to pitch in a game I got anxious because I wanted that game to start immediately and I always give this example my very first playoff game was in Yankee Stadium the first playoff game in Yankee Stadium after 9-11 so it's 2001 it's me against Roger Clemens game one of the ALDS you take the bus Two two thirty, I, or I took a cab. I don't know how we got to the field, but you get to the field and it's two thirty, and then you realize, okay, it's not a seven or seven thirty game because at that time I think it was the, I think NBC might have been doing the games and we didn't even start till eight p.m. Eastern. So now I'm sitting in the clubhouse, and I have a pregame routine that starts with a heat pack on my shoulder and my lower back, and that starts probably an hour forty before the game. So I now have five hours. So I'm walking to and from the dugout a few times. I'm watching guys take BP. I always kind of enjoyed at times to watch the other team take BP because it would kind of show you what some of those hitters are maybe working on. Sure. If they're constantly hitting every single ball the other way, well, maybe they're struggling doing that. I'd go watch that kind of stuff. And then I came up and man, this day, I remember getting back to the clubhouse and I look and it was like five 30. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. What am I supposed to do with myself? (laughs) That kind of becomes a hard part of it. But, you know, then once my routine started an hour 30, hour 40 before the game, now it's moving and now we're going. And next thing you know, you're out on the field, long tossing, you're, you're ready to go. And the only thing that was different with that game was that was the time when Alfonso Soriano was their leadoff hitter. And so first pitch of the game, Clemens comes out, throws the first inning, I go out for the bottom of the first and Soriano comes up and I swear to you, the ground was shaking. I mean, the entire stadium was on their feet because he did a lot of leadoff homers that year and whatnot. And I could be wrong, but it was either him or the second batter of the game ground ball, the second base and our second baseman, Frank Menachino, who's one of my boys boots it. And this freaking stadium went ballistic. You know, it's just one of those that you're like, you got to be kidding me. An error on a routine ball. And sure enough, I think I had first and third one out. I think I got Bernie Williams to ground into a double play to, to finish the inning, but with no runs. But 
that was one of the only moments in my career where that moment is just that feeling that I had for that first pitch of the game will never leave me. I'll remember that feeling that I had forever, which I think for a lot of tour players, you can maybe, maybe their first PGA tour tee shot. I got a sponsor's exemption into the Safeway at Napa, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I'll never forget how nervous I was on that first tee, you know, and the fact that it was a driver was awesome. Cause I could just hit my stupid little cut down, you know, down the right hand side. And that feeling is something I'll never forget. So that routine to me is huge and it eases your mind. I feel when you've done something hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of times, who knows, hitting a golf ball, throwing pitches, things like that. The more you do it, the more confident you are and the better you are at it. Well, it's interesting, Mark, because we've had, you know, Bob Rotella, Brett McCabe, a bunch of sports psychologists, authors and golf, Joe Parent, all of them. Tiger's talked about this. Tiger told this to Charlie of how a shot is a shot, right? A pitching wedge is a pitching wedge. You've hit it a million times, regardless of what it means. That's what starts to bring in the pressure. And then I started thinking about pitching where, cause I pitched growing up, I'm, you know, from St. Louis, my dad and I used to watch Cardinal games and debate what pitch you should throw in that situation. And I loved the mental aspect of outsmarting the hitter based on what they were showing me. And I remember when I played in high school, Mark, we've all had those at bats where I love how I'm comparing myself to you as just a high school player, but I'm going to do it. Anyway. Oh, good. Um, I love how we've all had those at bats where it's three, two, and they foul you off like eight times and you keep throwing strikes. And I'm like, maybe that's kind of like hitting out of the trees a little bit where you're just focus narrows because of the count and the stakes. But I'm just curious maybe how you battled through those moments, how you worked through the difference of a 3-0 pitch versus an 0-2 pitch. You know, did you have kind of like your fairway finder off the first tee at the Safeway? Did you have yeah. a strike zone finder in those situations? How did you navigate that mentally? So for me, I mean, I was a sinker ball guy and I generally, I mean, I could strike guys out, but that was never my goal unless – I had a guy on third with less than two outs. That's when you needed a strikeout or big situations. But for me, I was just trying to throw three pitches, get three outs. And, you know, to be honest, when I was cruising in a game, if I went 3-0 on somebody, to be fair, it wasn't a whole lot different than OO because mm -hmm. I was still in attack mode. I was still just trying to make a good pitch to get an out. Lots of times that didn't matter whether what the count was. Um, my sinker when I was on was good enough that I felt like I tried to throw it right down the middle of the plate being left-handed. It was going to sink down and away from a right-handed batter. And I was going to get ground ball, the shortstop. So my focus wasn't to make that perfect pitch. It was to throw a quality pitch that someone wasn't going to square up on the barrel of the bat. And I think sometimes, sometimes in golf, you're trying to hit such a perfect shot rather than, hey, green is tucked in the back right corner. Let's go 10, 20 feet to the left of that. And let's hit something in the middle of the green and let's give us a putt for birdie. Pitching, you can get yourself in the same kind of trouble. I tell people this example. It happened to me early in my career. Barry Bonds was obviously doing his thing in the early 2000s. And 2001, I believe, I gave up, I don't know, 37, 38 of the year he hit all those home runs. And it was right around the all-star break. And we went into the pitchers meeting and our pitching coach, we're going over. He's like, Hey, I'd be really careful with Barry with curveballs. He's raking left-hand curveballs right now. And I kind of go, well, he's never hit mine. Not that was not me saying that my curveball was that great. It's that he's never hit mine. And I was more of a sinker split curveball type pitcher I had a slider slash cutter that I used. I didn't really throw it to lefties. That was more to get in on righties. And during the game, sure enough, situation comes where for me, thinking of what I'm throwing next, it's all dictated on whether I located that pitch, whether the hitter's reaction to that pitch, that's what gives me the feeling or the thought of what comes next. And I don't know what happened, but I got to two strikes. And my thought was, I need to throw a curveball right here. 
Well, sure enough, the thought of my pitching coach saying, hey, let's be careful with curveballs here comes into my head. And my catcher, who we, Ramon Hernandez, we were on the same page. He obviously remembered that too. He gives me a slider away. What do I do? I throw a slider away and Barry hits a homer to left field. And there is that feeling of yeah. trying to do something that I shouldn't have done, but the numbers, the whatever, which that can happen in golf too. You have a feeling of a certain shot. I want to hit this 30 yard hook around these trees. It might be the wrong shot, but if it feels right to you and you have confidence in it, then do it. I always said pitching a bad pitch with confidence was always better than a good pitch without it. And there's the example of me throwing that good pitch, that slider away, but I didn't have confidence in it. I knew it was the wrong pitch and he hits the homer. I get the next guy out and I come in the dugout and I lost my shit kind of on our pitching coach. And I kind of yelled, I kind of yelled, Oh yeah. How's that for a blah, 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 curveball or not throwing a curveball. You know, and I swore to myself that was going to be the last time in my career I was going to let somebody dictate the pitch I wanted to throw, you know, because I I had this belief in myself that especially early in my career when all the steroid stuff and was going on, I people ask me today, how was it when you were throwing all those guys on steroids? And I didn't care. I get it. My my perception of it all was different at that time because I was oblivious to it. I was very naive. I was very, well, if they want to take that stuff, then go ahead, you know, and I never believed that it made them better than me. And so to me, my thought was always as a pitcher, if you rake balls that are pitches away, that's my strength. My strength is better than your strength. I try to take that into golf. I, it might be the wrong shot, but I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll die with, with something I believe in. You know, I'll live and die with something like that rather than going with the opposite. Yeah, Mark, Evan and I talk a lot about this on this show is because what you're saying is better to commit to the wrong shot than not yeah. commit to the right shot. Yeah. yeah. And like when you get off the course, it's like keeping track of your commitments and your lack of commitments, right? Yeah. Because and that's kind of where you see why were those four shots that I didn't or pots that I didn't commit to today? You think back, what was going through my mind? What what created the discomfort? Yeah. Right? As opposed to maybe dwelling on the score of the whole, it's just kind of getting a little deeper into the story. And it goes for pitching too, like you were talking about. I try to play dummy golf. I'll never grab a club out of the bag until it's my turn to hit. I play really fast. I don't let myself outthink things. What feels right, I just go with it. It might be the bad shot, but my thought in golf is always, and I tell my son this now that he's playing too, is that, you can get mad for about five seconds after a shot. And I always was the same way. I never showed much emotion on the mound, good or bad. I was never the celebrating guy coming off the mound. I was out there to do my job, good or bad. I was never going to let that other team know whether they got to me. I tell my son, when I gave up a homer, what was I going to do? Slam my glove to the ground like a little baby? I mean, no, I'm going to ask for another ball from the umpire and I'm going to go make another pitch. You hit a bad golf shot, go find it and go hit a good shot. You need to have a short memory in both sports. I choked my brains out in Tahoe this summer. I recorded it. I will not go back and watch it because I know what I was feeling. I know I learned from it. I know what I did wrong and I'm not going to let it happen again. Going back and watching it, all it does is bring up that feeling again and reinforce those bad things. Why go watch that? You know, I, I live through that moment. I don't need to go experience it again. So what did you learn from that? Obviously in the playoff versus Romo and could well, have, potentially could have won yeah. your fourth this year. What, what do you learn the most from it? I should have won by 10 or more points. Uh, what happened was, so I, on the front nine, I birdied, three, four, five, got up by a whole bunch. I'm not one who really watches the scoreboard, but we got to seven and the scoreboard's like right there. And so I kind of saw that I was up by probably 10 points or so. And I went to eight, got really unlucky, hit a good birdie putt from about 10 feet. 
and it kind of, you know, Poana greens, it kind of bounced right in front of the hole and missed it. But it, for some reason, it made me a little tentative. And we go to hole nine, I hit one to about six feet, but a good cup outright. I decelled into it. You know what I thought was if I catch this right edge, it's going to go five feet down this slope. Wrong thing to think. But that's what I thought. Left it a little short and left of the hole, tapped it in. And all of a sudden in my head was went, let's make pars. Which that's yeah. not what I was thinking for the first 45 holes of the tournament. Why am I thinking it now? That's kind of what happened. I got super defensive, not on the tee shots, but it was more on the approach shots. Everything was just trying to just flight everything. Let's just chip it. Because the course is short. So let's just chip it up there on and two putt for par. Well, next thing you know, I'm maybe missing greens. I'm hitting it to 40 feet. And as fast and as bumpy as those greens are, you can't do that. None of us are good enough to two putt from 30, 40 feet. I mean, those things had to be at least 13. I mean, they were flying. And then your putting becomes defensive. And next thing you know, you, you hit some bad shots. And now I'm not accumulating points. And then I have a tough four footer that I end up missing for bogey. There's a double bogey minus two points. Like it just kind of snowballed. Mm. And when I missed that bogey putt on 13, 14, you know, there was a little depression in, in my line and I kind of fixed it. And as I go to hit the putt, I'm looking at it going, gosh, I don't know if I fixed it well enough. Why am I worrying about that? You know what I mean? But, those, but this is what happens. <laughs> And the thing that made that tough for me was that is not me. That's not how I play golf. That was very unusual for me. I couldn't stop it. And my caddy, my buddy who caddies for me, I'm like, come on, dude. Like I'm trying to do everything I can. And he's trying. Yeah. It's just the way it goes. It's unfortunate. But those are the learning experiences, you know? I promise you this, I'll never let it happen again, you know, <laughs> but unfortunately it did happen. And in the playoff, we obviously all birdied the first playoff hole. And then the Pavelski and I, to be fair, that, that tee shot on 18 is so damn hard for me because I play a little cut and those trees on the left. I mean, Joe and I both, we probably two feet to the right and both of us are right down the middle. I have probably a five yard window to where my cut kind of stays away from the trees that are way up there on the right. We both missed it by a couple feet. That's the way it goes. And Tony plays a little draw. So that, that tee shot's a little different for him. All right, we're going to take a quick break here from another favorite sponsor and we'll get you right back to the show. I've got so many good belts from Roosters. It's hard to decide which one to wear. I've got the navy and white. I've got the black and white. I've got a blue and white. I've got multicolor. And you know that having a Roosters belt shows that you're a man of style, a man of detail. And Roosters belts is the best stretch woven belt I've ever worn. And the bonus, they've got a ton of colors that are based in college football spirit. So if you're a big college football fan, get yourself a belt that you could wear tailgate, watching the game and at the round before the big game. So go to shop roostas. That's R O O S T A S.com. Enter the code train, get 15% off and free shipping. Get yourself a belt for the college football days, but also important golf rounds and just spruce your outfit up to the level that you deserve. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Mark, I think it's interesting. You talk about, you know, you're a natural cutter, right? And it's just obvious that right to left holes are harder. I'm it's yeah. generally the same thing for me. When you go into those, you, I mean, you're a great player. There's certain holes that set up well for you. Yeah. There's certain holes that maybe don't. Uh, how do you shift your thinking typically, you know, from hole to hole? Because for me, it's sometimes you've got to realize that this just might not be a birdie hole for me. It could, it might not be, but I know there's going to be chances down the road on the holes that look more to fit my eye. But how do you recognize that, you know, for our listeners out there, like every hole's different and every hole doesn't always fit you. Well, my, my driver's a little cut and everything else in my bag when I'm playing well is a little drop. So in years past, I've hit three wood or rescue on that 18th hole, but I've also hit driver and had a chip 54 degree into that green. 
normally how we play it, it all depends on how I'm hitting my driver. If I'm hitting my driver well, I'm going to hit driver because there is the example. I have more confidence in hitting that at that moment than I am trying to hit a three-wood or a rescue on that hole. So in years past, I've hit a draw rescue on 18 and had nine iron into the green, which is fine too. Yeah. But I had confidence in it. I just hit it twice on the regular 18. I hit it right down the middle and in the first playoff hole, right down the middle. So why would I hit anything different? You know, and there's the example. The only thing I wish I would have done different after I clipped that tree is I wish I would have just laid up because I clipped that tree and I could have gotten a four iron up on the front of the green, but why? I didn't need to do that. And when I pulled it a little, it went right into the long stuff and I had no chance of getting it out of that stuff, but you're going to try. But why was I trying to hit four iron up on the front of the green? Like that was really stupid. I should have just chipped a wedge down there and had a little 60 degree to the green. But there's another example of, I don't play golf for a living. So, <laughs> well, you know, you're capable get... of hitting that forehand. I can do this, but yes, but that was a very the wrong, wrong play. The wrong play. You know, my thought at that time is that 18th hole is such a short hole that Tony's sitting there in the middle. He's going to hit a pitching wedge onto the green and have a 10, 15 foot eagle putt. Odds are he might not make it, but that was my thinking is I need to get something up there to kind of make sure I make birdie. But I can make birdie from 80 yards. I can make birdie from 120. Why I was thinking that, I really don't know. But you learn from it. That's the way it goes. Isn't it funny, Mark, how sometimes, and Serm and I have talked a lot about this on the show, sometimes the lack of commitment isn't conscious. And it sounds like it was kind of like that for you. Sometimes it's just physical, where for some (laughs) reason all day, something doesn't feel right. It's hard to let it go. You tell yourself to commit, and it's really difficult. It's just, it's a bizarre thing. And sometimes you just need to lean into, I'm curious if you have like an executional key or something in your swing, whether it's tempo or stand in your posture that you can kind of lean on in those moments where you're not feeling your best or the pressure is at its highest. So I have this rescue. I have a picture of me playing in something from 2010 and I have this rescue in my hand. So I know it's at least that old. Mm-hmm. And I've had it, it's a 20 degree rescue that I've had forever. And I call it like my baby blanket, but in Tahoe, <laughs> I probably hit it. I only hit driver in Tahoe, maybe on four holes. And on the other nine or 10 or so I hit my rescue, but in Tahoe, I'll hit this thing 300 yards. It's my safety net. If I don't like a certain par four, I, with my driver, I hit rescue. My rescue is kind of my safety thing. And then I can hit this low little driver that cuts, has way too much spin. I come steep. I come over the top of it. But that's like a fairway finder for me. I was just going to so say when I'm, finder. Yeah, yeah, when I'm uncomfortable, that's what I hit. And my mm. buddies all laugh at me because it probably doesn't get more than 20, 30 feet off the ground. It probably goes 270 maybe. But it generally will be down the middle or down the right-hand side. Sounds so awesome to just, me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everybody jokes, dude, why don't you just do that every time? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, what fun would that be? Yeah. Well, that's uh, what you see tour players do in the heat of the moment. It's the low cut. Yeah. That's the shot. Yeah. You know. You're going to get away with that yeah. as opposed to trying to hit a draw. I can just smother this thing and it just kind of, you know, and it's okay. So those big moments on the course, whatever, but there's the example. I can't hit that on 18 in Tahoe, you know, so that that's kind of the problem. You got to try and hit that full shot and hit that straight one. But yeah, those are kind of the, the two shots that I have. Mark, what's your index right now? At the moment, I think it's a plus 1.3. Okay. Give or take. So our listeners are going to laugh at this, but at the beginning of the show, Mark said, my swing is shit and Mm -hmm. my stupid little cut. So how can your swing be shit? If you're a plus 1.4, I just want to let's back this out. All right, so the courses that I play here in Scottsdale, whether it's Whisper Rock, Silverleaf, it's the whole handicap system's BS, by the way. Right. We always play all the way back. So when I shoot 75, 76, that's a zero. Yeah. You know, so if I do throw down, if I go Pinnacle Peak Country Club, like between me and my buddies, we have kind of all the places covered here in Scottsdale. So 
we're, when we go play, whether it's DC Ranch or Pinnacle Peak or some of the others, and I throw down a 71, now all of a sudden that's a plus one maybe, you know, or a plus one and a half when it goes in. So, you know, those are the ones that get me. So I'm not shooting under par. That's the reality. Mm-hmm. You know, my 76 at Silverleaf goes in basically as zero. Right. And then we go play in some little two-man game or a best ball type deal. And I throw up a good number and it gets me in trouble. And I'm also, if I could show you all my scores, don't think for a second, I don't have 82s in there, you know, because those happen to me in a heartbeat with the courses that I'm playing. And I have plenty of those, trust me. And I'm also the one, you put me in a nice money game with our buddies and I'm going to play way better than a little hit and giggle with my son and one of his friends or, or whatever, because that's when I'm not playing for something or I'm not playing in some sort of a, something that means something, I don't generally play very well. Yeah. So, and I'm the person I try to put in every single score because I want it to be as real as possible. I want to know kind of where I stand and what kind of player I am. I've been as good as maybe a plus 2.1, maybe a few years ago, but it usually hovers right around during the winter, I kind of go back to kind of zero or somewhere around there because during the winter I'm playing more at Whisper Rock and Silverleaf and stuff. And then in the summertime, we're up in Flagstaff at a place called Pine Canyon where it's a little short considering the elevation at 7,000 feet. And I'll throw down some 67, 68, 69. So that's when I kind of go back to that plus one, plus two. Now that summer's kind of kind of ending i'll be back in scottsdale playing more and my handicap will probably go back to around a zero so do you actually believe your swing is shit oh my swing is awful (laughs) dude i have this whole slide i have this whole slide at impact and but my hand-eye coordination is really good so yeah i just find a way to kind of make it work and because that's what it's about mark right make it work exactly it is and in my mind i envision when i hit a ball well in my mind, I have a tour swing. And if I see the video of it, it's just like, oh, yeah. no. You know, it, it's it's embarrassing because I do so many things so poorly. I'm strong enough. I'm big enough. My hand-eye coordination is good enough that I get away with it. But I'm left-handed. And I golf righty. I swing a bat lefty. Hitting a golf ball righty is not a natural movement for me. You watch me swing a club lefty. And honestly, you if I said to you, do I play golf righty or lefty? And you just watch me swing. Hmm. You'd never say that I golf right-handed. So that's kind of my problem. But, and I love hitting balls lefty. I can do it okay, but not great. But my body works correctly swinging left-handed. It, it doesn't work correctly swinging right-handed because it's really just not a natural movement for me. Slow pitch softball, bowling, anything underhand, I have to do right-handed. Everything else is lefty though. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break and hear from one of our favorite sponsors. We'll get you right back to the show, I promise. I don't want to get burned. I'm going to be wearing Oars and Alps sunscreen. I use the face stick, the go stick, on my face. It's great. I always have it in my bag now. It's great for reapplying. And I use the SPF 50 spray with antioxidants and vitamin C for my neck, my arms, and my legs. And that was ranked the number one sunscreen by Men's Health in 2021. The Go Stick was the number one new product at the PGA show this year. It's the best. So go to oarsandalps.com. That's oarsandalps.com. Enter the code train, get 15% off. And while you're there, while you got the code, throw in a deodorant, throw in a face wipe, throw in eye cream, treat yourself. Okay. I'm telling you, Oars and Alps is becoming the number one brand for anything beauty or self-care related for men. They got body wash, they got deodorant, they got face wipes, they got creams, they got hair gel, they got hair clay, they've got a thickening spray. They've got all of it. I'm telling you, they email me when they're coming out with new stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, you guys are kind of like the rowback of self-care. You guys are killing it every step of the way. Every new product's incredible. So oarsandalps.com, enter the code train, get yourself 15% off and get yourself a sunscreen without all those chemicals. All right, let's get back to the show. I want to go back a little bit to the late 2000s when, unfortunately, you got hurt when you were playing. And then in 2010, I believe, is when you, you did the Golf Channel Amateur Tour. 
yeah. 2010. And you had incredible success. I think you won six events. I don't really know. Yeah, but right. It's there's just, a few trophies behind him right done, now. Maybe that's and, some of them. And you weren't <laughs> done with baseball either, but you were kind of getting into your competitive golf career. Why do you think you had that success? Was there just maybe your experience as a, as a top professional athlete that translated well? But we also talk a lot about your long game. Your short game had to have been pretty strong then and still is now. So I'm just, just curious about that time when you um, kind of got into the fire a little bit as a player. Yeah, for me, I, I did the – I qualified for the, what, U.S. Mid-Am, I think in 10 or 11, something like that. I did a lot of those AM Tour stuff. I did all that stuff to not drive my wife crazy, uh, <laughs> to be fair. I needed to find a way – to fill that competitive void. I'd competed in sports my entire life. And here I am in 2009 with, to be fair, nothing to do. That's really what it was. And I, I remember one day I went in my office, sat in front of the computer and I searched amateur golf tournaments. That's what I found because I wanted a way to compete. We had little kids at the time. So some of those member guests, member members at the clubs I was at, I didn't have time to, I, I would do some of them, but yeah, it was hard with our kids being so little. So finding one and two day kind of tournaments with that AM tour filled that void. They were every three weeks, maybe. And then they had a few regional ones and in Palm desert, things like that. So it, it was fun. That's really what happened because I found myself on the couch one day and I looked at my wife and I go, what is that beeping? And she's like, it's the dryer. You can go get all the stuff out. You know, and I was like, oh, I need to go find something to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and that's that's kind of how that happens. So your competitive uh, fire carried right over. Yeah. And, and one thing yeah. led to another. And then I I think it was 2011 or so I got into the American century and then it kind of snowballed from there. I I never really played competitive golf. So when I got into that American century, I needed to find a way to compete, to learn how to do that. Because one of my first years, actually, it might've been my first year uh, playing in Tahoe. I was first, second, third, whatever it was after day one. And I had 20 some points. I'm like, I'm going to crush these guys. Day two, I think I had like six. Because I stood on that first tee at day two in the final group. And next thing you know, my hand, I'm like that teeing up the ball. And to this day, round one, two, and three, the first tee shot, don't think for a second, I'm not hoping that ball stays on the tee. Once I get away from that first tee, I'm fine. Because now I'm out in the moment, things are going. But the first hole, that first tee shot, it, it's not a, I love the feeling. It doesn't go away it, though. <laughs> it, yeah, but that's. Yeah, until after you hit it. But <laughs> you, you learn how to, I've learned how to handle it now. But those first few years, man, it was something I'd never really experienced because I, well, I hadn't experienced it. So it was a, it was a fun thing to learn and, and to learn how to control that. Well, this always happens, Mark. When we have someone on the first time, we got to cover a lot of bases. We could probably spend a whole hour on 2015, 2016, 2017 American Century. We're going to get to yeah. that in a second. But first, I got to ask before I get to that. It seems to be rare to feel like I don't really like my move, but yet be confident in it. How do you balance that? Because I think most of our listeners, including myself, Sermon and I have talked about this. He's going to laugh like more than he probably wants me to talk about it. Like I've gotten into swing stuff as much as anyone. And right now I'm playing with something that I know is ugly, but at least I feel like good with it. You know, I feel yeah. like I can swing aggressively to it. I know my ball is going to draw. Is that what it's like for you? How do you balance those two? Because a lot of our listeners, I bet, struggle with that. I absolutely own my swing. That's it. Yeah. I own it. I played with some buddies yesterday. The place I work out at, we did some stuff two days ago that was something we hadn't done. My whole upper body, I couldn't move. I played terrible yesterday, but the point is, is my little slide, my little dip that I do was a little exaggerated because my body wasn't working great. But there was a day I shot... We were at Silverleaf. I think I shot 77, lost a little bit of money, but um, I own it. And they were laughing at me because I was hitting it so poorly, but I was just finding some fairways, finding grass. And I just own it. My swing is my swing. I've taken three, four lessons in my entire life. 
but that's only when things got really bad years ago. So I just know that I'm going to find a way to make it work. And I've thought about it. I've thought about going to change it. And, but then I feel like I'm not going to enjoy that. I want to enjoy golf. And if I go take lessons, my personality, I'm going to want to make it better. I'm going to want to put in the work. I'm going to want to really try and improve, but then it's not going to be fun for me. Then it's going to be like a job. It's going to be, it's going to be something that I don't want it to be. That's, that's the reality. And so I just own my swing. It is what it is. I mean, I'm obviously, I try to make it better a little bit, but, and there's a few things that I try to do on the course to not do the things that I hate so much, but to be fair, it's, it's how I swing the club. And I know that I have a belief that as bad as my swing might be, I can repeat that bad swing. And if I can repeat it, that means I know where it's going to go. Not everybody pitches the same way, but if you can throw the ball where, if you can locate and you can throw the ball where you need to, you can have success. And you, you, you let me look at pitching in the big leagues. Now, most of the guys can't command the ball at all, but they all throw 98 to 102. Congratulations. Look at Kershaw. He's, he's only throwing 92. He's dominating. Look at Scherzer. He doesn't throw 98. He throws 94, 95. Now they locate some of the, the veteran guys in baseball right now are still dominating because they can flat out locate the baseball. It's the mm-hmm. same thing in golf. If you know where you're going to hit it, now it becomes a putting contest and the better putters win. Well, that's what I was going to say, Mark. I mean, own your swing, do your move and just focus a little harder on a hundred yards in. Yeah. Right. Putting yeah. a little extra time around the greens, right. Being more creative because that's it. Well, I just heard something where Dustin and Rory both said something about 80, 90% of the stuff they practice is with is wedges to putting. Yeah. You know, kind of makes sense to me. Well, we said it's the year of the short game. That's what we've been saying all year. Cause I realized <laughs> most of our listeners and me spend an hour at the range each week. And I was like, all right, do 50, 50, 50% at the range, 50% at the short game area, just to start, you really should be doing 80, 20, 90, 10, but okay. We only got six minutes. We got to talk about the American century celebrity golf championship. So yep. I guess to start Mark, talk me through the difference of 2015 and winning your first time versus how did that experience change? Was it easier? Or was it harder to win back to back twice? You won three in a row. So talk to me about the differences. Cause a lot of times it's like, you're going to experience pressure in the hunt, but you finally get it done. It seems like it opened the floodgates for you. I bet there's some mental learnings for our listeners there. It got harder every year. Okay. For me, but I think it was more of me putting it on myself than it was. It wasn't outside pressure. It was me expecting more of myself each year. I wanted to go and defend my title. And, you know, I get a little, my wife laughed. Well, she doesn't always laugh, but she, it's, I change right before the tournament. I kind of get quiet. Don't really want to do anything, but that's how I was before I pitched. I could never go have lunch with someone before I pitched that night because my mind was already getting on that night's what I needed to be ready to do. Yeah. And so with the golf, it's kind of the same way. We go out to Tahoe Sunday, Monday, and the tournament is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And every day we get closer, I get a little more quiet. I get a little more short with my kids. I get a little, I mean, whatever it is, it's just how my brain works. Um, It's all preparing. My mind is on it. I kind of can't get away from it. And to be fair, now I've kind of learned from it and I'm not as bad, but 15, 16, 17, 16, it was bad. I, I really put a lot on myself to win again. 2017, it was even worse. And to be fair, on the 18, there was a little bit of relief when I didn't win, when I didn't play very well, because I had put so much on myself to try to do it again. And I forget what it was. Our kids had so much stuff and I went into 18. There's the example. I was not prepared. We were doing stuff with our kids. I don't know sports, whatever it was. I hadn't really practiced and I'm not a practice person. I'm not a practice person with golf. I I just go play, but I really wasn't prepared for 18. So 
Yeah, each of those years, I mean, once I got on the course, I was fine. Once the tournament started, I was fine. But it was leading up to it, man, that anxiousness. There it is. You know, it's the anxiousness of just wanting to get to Tahoe. I just want the tournament to start. I just want to get to the first tee. It kind of ate me up a little bit leading up those few days prior to the tournament that now it really doesn't. I'm there to enjoy myself. I'm there to have fun with the guys because the majority of the guys there are so much fun to play with. My favorite round ever. First year I won it. It's me, Ronick, and Erlacher, and we're doing fireball shots coming down 16 fairway. Chicago, here we go. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. There's this Chicago right there. I grew up a White Sox fan. Love Erlacher, love Ronick. They both for a time, they all live out here in Arizona. I play golf with them and two good buddies. And that was my favorite round in Tahoe. You know, we're chest bumping after birdies. Now I'm taller than Erlacher, but I would suggest to not chest bump with him. Right. He's a little more solid than I am, but yeah, it's, it's just a fun group of guys. So That's now great. that you've won three, it sounds like you wanted it real bad. I've made that mistake yeah. with member guests and stuff. You almost yeah. want it too much. What do you learn from it now? You've won it. You know what it takes. What do you take from your mindset that you've won, but also removing some of the pressure that maybe can help you win it a fourth time? For me, it's, it's now that my kids are getting older, you know, when, when we won it in 15, 16, 17, my kids used to say, dad, are we going back to that tournament where we get to run out on the green on 18? <laughs> that was, that was the running joke with them. They thought that was just a normal thing because they yeah. didn't remember much. They were a lot younger. Now with my oldest playing golf, he's 14. He wants to caddy for me. To be fair, me choking this year on the last nine holes was awesome for him. He got to watch that. He got to watch how I handled it. I took him into the media room afterwards. He watched me answer all the questions about it. And to be fair, I think it might have done more for him than it did for me. For me to have those experiences with my kids now, they're at the age where they will remember this stuff as opposed to maybe when they were younger. I have a shelf life of when I'm going to be able to play in these tournaments. And I understand my name. I'm very well aware of my name compared to a lot of the other guys playing in this tournament or in any of the tournaments. And I'm totally cool with that. But the fact that I've had a chance to win, it keeps me in a lot of these things. So um, at some point, the invites are going to stop. And so I am there each and every year to enjoy this with my wife and kids, to have those experiences, especially the Tahoe one, because they go. The other ones, the Dallas with the Champions Tour and Orlando with the Hilton one with the LPGA. The kids can't go because of school and stuff, but there's a shelf life and it's going to come to an end soon. And my 14-year-old wants to caddy next year. He caddied for me in the Champions Tour event this year, and he was incredible as a caddy. Way better than a caddy I would be for him. And so I just want to have these memories with them. And yes, the minute the lights go on and the minute I'm on the course, I am there to dominate everybody. That's my mindset. Now, if I don't do it, it's the way it goes. But my son is not going to watch me throw clubs. He's not going to watch me get all mad on the course. He's going to watch me act the same way, whether I win or lose. And if I set that example for him, maybe it helps him in his career down the road. Maybe it helps my kids in life. I'm not really sure where that's going to end up, but that's how my wife and I are. What we're doing is for our kids and for the people closest to me. And that's kind of who I am. So if my kids turn out to be good people because they saw me act the right way and answer a question the right way or whatever, then I win, you know, and that's, that's kind of how I look at it. And Mark golf is the game of life, right? You're going to have it forever with your kids and that's what other sport can you do, do it together throughout your whole life. That's exactly right. Well, we got to get you out of here, Mark, but first I'll give you the floor. Anything that you either want to say that you didn't get a chance to say that you think could help our listeners, the average 10, 15 handicap, or is there anything you want to reiterate for them? I'm just a big believer, kind of what you guys just said, is golf is something that you can play forever. Golf is what brings people together. Golf is meant to be enjoyed. It it is not meant to be clubs twirled across the, I mean, there's just no reason for it. There's just no reason to get that angry about golf. Yeah. And, and if you are getting that angry, then, then you're playing maybe for too much money, the wrong reasons, or maybe you just have a shitty attitude. I, I don't know. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I get angry on the golf course, 
but there's no reason to show it. There's no, I'm there to have fun, man. And because if I didn't have golf, my life would maybe be a little more frustrating because golf to me is an escape. Golf is a, an amazing three to four hours with friends, maybe longer depending where you play, but I want three. I want to play where you're playing. Play quick, play fast, have fun. That's it, man. Sounds like Mark saying our our motto, sir, which is enjoy the ride. So I love it. it. Well, thank you, Mark. I think uh, the best place to find you, correct me if I'm wrong, mmolder20 on Instagram, anywhere else? No, I don't really use much else. Sweet. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I know this This is going to help a lot of people. And uh, we'll have to have you back when you win your fourth. Right. Let's hope so. Let's go. (laughs) All right. Take care, Mark. All right. Thanks, guys. 